Thanks, Matthew. And yeah, hey, grown-ups, it's not just for kids. If you'd like to come out tonight, Steve's going to have a little fire ring in case your, in case your tootsers get cold. And, and you can sit, if, if, if kind of just handing stuff out and just talking to the people as they walk by, if that's your thing, stop by. Uh, Steve has a place for you. Now, as we get into um, our continuing series on the book of Revelation, if you haven't been here before or haven't been here for a while, we've been uh, working our way through the book of Revelation since the beginning of September, and uh, we're doing it carefully and quickly, right? Now, just to recap where we've been, uh, last week and and in the last two weeks, we've talked about... um, a series of sevens, right? As we got through Revelation 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, we talked about seven seals on a scroll and four horsemen to bring different kinds of calamities to the earth. And we read about martyrs in heaven asking God how long until his justice would come and they would be avenged. And God said, just a little bit longer. And I don't know if you remember the statistic that was shared two weeks ago, but every hour on this planet, Do you remember how many people come to faith in Christ, the statistics are telling us? Every hour, how many? 3,000 people are coming to Christ every hour on this earth. And so that may help us to understand God's patience a bit more. Why hasn't he just ended things yet? 3,000 more if we can wait another hour. 6,000 more if we can wait another two hours. You, You get the picture. And then after those seals and scrolls were discussed, we talked about seven angels. Each one has a trumpet, and each time one of these angels blows a trumpet, there's another, another tough thing that happens. Last week, Pastor Steve talked about hail and fire from the sky and asteroid earthquakes. The sun and the moon and the stars are affected. There are plagues on people, plagues around creation. It says in Revelation 9:18 that a third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of the mouths of these creatures that John tries to explain. And we talked about, and we've been framing this for a number of weeks, we talked about how all of these things, these really seemingly terrible things, they're happening for two reasons. Number one, let us not forget that humanity deserves it. I mean, before we think too highly of ourselves, why would God ever do that? Well, have you seen what we do to each other? All of us deserve the kind of treatment that is happening in Scripture. Romans 3.23, we know that, that all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, all of us, all of us deserve death, right? And Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God is not cruel. Whatever bad things we get, we've earned That's point number one that we just have to keep in mind. But point number two, and this is really a theme that you have to remember as you try to make sense of Revelation. God is trying to get attention of people who have not been giving God any attention. In 2 Peter 3, verse 9, Peter says that God is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God God doesn't want us to turn away from him, but God gives us freedom and we make our own choices. Some of us choose to turn away from God, to reject God, to be stubborn in our resistance of God. That's why it says in Revelation 9.20 that after a third of mankind was killed by these plagues, it says the rest of mankind, again, this is Revelation 9.20, we're just kind of doing a prelude here, The rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. 
They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Here John is sharing as he sees this vision that all of these things are happening. God is working to get people's attention, but you know people like this, right? Some of you have been people like this saying, I don't care what happens. I'm not turning to God. I'm not, I'm not going to. I'm not able to. I will not. God is working to get the attention of people. Humanity deserves annihilation, but God is sending these plagues, these calamities to get people's attention so that they'll turn back to him. We know that the scripture says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's opportunity for everyone, even in these days, to turn to Jesus. But what does the scripture say? They will not. You and I have choices to make. You ever know anybody who wouldn't change their ways until things got, well, you might look at them and say things are already bad. You know anybody who said they wouldn't change their ways until things got even worse? Have you ever said about someone, or maybe observed in someone, or maybe this was you, have you ever seen that they just wouldn't change until they totally bottomed out, until they had nowhere else to go, no other apparent choices? Do you know people like that? Have you been a person like that? Have you ever looked at these people and wondered, how long are they going to hold on to their foolishness? You've been praying for them. You've been talking to them however you can. Maybe these are even people who ought to know better. Maybe these are people who grew up close to the Lord or at least close to the church and and heard about the stories. Keep that in mind with Revelation. First of all, keep praying for those people. But remember, God isn't torturing people for fun. God's not like a kid with a magnifying glass looking to fry an ant. That's not how God works. God doesn't enjoy or look forward to punishing people. What's happening in Revelation is God is sending these bad things in the hopes that these bad things are going to get some people's attention and help them to realize that they can't lean on themselves anymore and turn to God. And in fact, as we're going to see as we study through Revelation, there are going to be a lot of people who do come to their senses. But what did we just read? What did I just read in Revelation 9.20? Many did not. Keep this in mind. And now we get into our text for the morning, Revelation chapter 10. John has been seeing all these visions, this apocalypsis from Jesus. That's, that's kind of like a pulling back the curtain, right? And he says, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like sun and his legs were like fiery pillars, there's some, there's some reference here to, to stories that you may remember, even if you didn't realize he's, he's robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. You remember in the book of Genesis, the rainbow was God's symbol, God's promise that he would never destroy the earth again with a flood. The rainbow is a picture of God's faithfulness. It says his face, this angel, was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. Do you remember in the book of Exodus, there were fiery pillars mentioned. What did they signify to the nation of Israel? Do you remember? They signified God's presence, a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud at day. It was Israel's reminder that God is with them. Here is this angel coming down with a rainbow that that signifies God's faithfulness. So with these fiery pillars talking about God's presence, it says in verse 2, this angel was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, giving us the picture that this angel is huge. 
touches all creatures and all of creation. Verse 3, this angel gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. That'd be a great team name for, for, your next, uh, for your next intramural volleyball league. Or I, I don't know, or maybe you play seven-on-seven seven football, you know, the seven thunders. I'm sorry for that. It just, it just hits me. That that's a, boy, that's, and, and here's what's even more fascinating. Do you see verse four? When the seven thunders spoke. Now remember, we've been talking about seals and things that happen with, when the seals of the scroll are open. We've been talking about angels with trumpets. But here, when the seven thunders spoke, John says, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And to my knowledge, those seven thunders are not mentioned again, specifically. There's going to be some stuff we're going to learn in heaven someday that I don't know if we're going to care, but I'm going to ask God, hey, what, what did you show John with those? Or, or maybe I'll ask John, hey, John, what did you see? What did you hear with those seven thunders? Verses like this remind me that there's still a lot that I don't know. And there's still a lot that we can't know. There are things that are going to happen that even though we have some of these prophecies that lay out some ideas, there's still a lot of mystery. Am I, am I right, folks? There's still a lot that God is working out that, that we're going to have to wait and see. Some of that is what these seven thunders have said. God said, don't write this down. And then John moves on, verse five. The angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land, this is the one with the rainbow over his head and the, the legs like fiery pillars and huge and loud voice like a lion, raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, the sea that's all that's in it. This is a good angel, right? He's speaking to God. And he says, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. And then in verse eight, the voice that I had heard from heaven, John gives his commentary. The voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. In other words, go to that angel and get the message that he's got. And so John says, I went to the angel. I asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth, it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand. I ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. John here is talking about, and he's giving us this description, this, this, very, this very visual description of his very visual encounter with God. John says, I was given this message, this little scroll that sounds good at first, but once he really took it in and digested it, it was painful. Kind of a sweet and sour message from God, right? The sweet is that, you know, God's plan is working out. There, there are good things happening. There's no more delay. But the sour part is there's going to be a lot more pain for a lot more people. And John is a man full of compassion. Sweet and sour prophecy. We can relate to this, right? Good news sometimes has a hard edge on it. Sometimes the good news is just what's going to happen in the long term, and what's going to happen in the short term is very difficult. Has anybody ever looked forward to a surgery? Maybe a surgeon. Have any patients ever looked forward to a surgery? No, you didn't look forward to the surgery, but you looked forward to the relief or the healing or the restoration that it might give you, right? How many people said, I just 
can't wait till they give me that anesthesia and roll me in, and then I roll out not knowing what's going on. How many people look forward to that? Have you ever looked forward to that? No, but how many of you ever said, I can't wait until my back doesn't hurt anymore? I can't wait till this appendix is not driving me crazy. I can't wait till they can get this thing off of me. Right? You look forward to the results. This is kind of what John is experiencing here. He's saying there's something good happening. There's a good part of this message, but oh, there's, there's in the pit of my stomach, it's just kind of sour. This brings up a big question, a big theological question, which we'll get started on this week and we'll talk about more next week. Okay, that's, that's my little teaser for you. Yeah. As I've been discussing these sermons with my small group, and maybe you've talked about them with yours. One of the questions that came up is, well, is the church going to be around for all of these trials? We read about these, we read about these judgments, these seals, these trumpets, and then we read about bowls, we read about a third of this goes away and destroyed and people, and, and, and people said, well, is the church around for all this, or has the church been like raptured away by this time? What's happening? Well, it's a simple question with no simple answer quite frankly. There is a school of thought, and these are, these are brilliant men and women who are reading their Bibles, and they're trying to be faithful to everything that the Bible says. There is a school of thought that says that the church will not have to go through any of these trials, won't have to go through any of the struggles talked about in Revelation, that the church will be raptured. That means kind of just, frankly, lifted up from the earth and taken to heaven before all this happens. That, and we'll talk more about this, like I said, next week. We'll get to some categories, frameworks. Why do people think that? What's that mean? But there's a school of thought that says that. And, and a lot of our neighbors, some of you, are in that camp. There's another school of thought, though, that says the church will still be here on earth for at least a portion of the time when these bad things are happening, but will be protected and preserved by God. That, you know, a third of the people who die, well, those are not believers, but God's saving. And, and these are people who are reading their Bibles. They're being faithful in, in their attempts to interpret it and figure out what it all means. And then there's another school of thought that says that the church will still be here on earth through all of these calamities and that there will be a lot to endure, but that God will give the church strength to endure and continue to be his messengers for the gospel even through all that time. Again, Church, we'll talk more about these ideas next week. People hold these ideas very passionately. Some of you are in one camp of this or the other, very passionately. I understand. We're going to talk about why and how that happens. But it's one of those challenges of dealing with prophecy, dealing with things that are happening now somewhat, but happening for sure in the future as people come up with their ideas about Revelation and Daniel and Ezekiel and some other prophetic writings, people do get a lot of ideas grounded in Scripture, but people who arrive at different conclusions tend to emphasize different pieces of Scripture to get there. Some people say, oh, the key is in Isaiah. If you read this part of Isaiah, right, it, the dominoes fall and you can see that this is what Revelation means. Other people say, no, it's in Daniel. And if you understand these, these weeks and these times and these years in Daniel, that then you'll understand it. Others say, no, no, it's in Matthew 24 and 25 because Jesus says this, and that's the key, and, and here's where it all falls out. Others say, no, there's this, you can see how things happen, right? Because, again, we're talking about things that are happening in the future. We're, we're not 100% sure how they're going to happen. We just know the end goal, that God is going to bring his justice, and that eventually there will be 
Salvation for those who call on the name of the Lord. And all else will be sent to hell. What did we see today in Revelation chapter 10 with this large angel, with the scroll? We see that there's still a lot of mystery in Revelation, and we don't have all the information. For some things, we have to wait and see. As I said, we'll talk about this more next week, but here's the final idea that I want you to think and pray about today. There are things that we don't know about exactly how things will wrap up. There are some things in Revelation that seem to be happening in the present, some things that are definitely still future. There is mystery in this prophecy. But there are things we do know. And the things that we do know about the Lord far outweigh the questions that we have about prophecy that we don't know. As we read Revelation, we can't forget the rest of the Bible. It's just but one book. The clear teachings of Jesus, Paul, the scriptures in the New Testament, the Old Testament, they show us how to live, whether we're living in these last days or not. Do you follow me? So, so we can argue about exactly what the future looks like. We can argue philosophically about which Bible passages might be key for this and that as we look toward the future. But we know very clearly, we've seen many of the teachings of Jesus that, that we know some things about how to live now. Let me give you an example. Peter, in his second letter, verse three, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter three, verse 11, he says, talking about the end of the world, how a lot of things are going to be destroyed, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Peter says, since everything will be destroyed, what kind of people should you believers be? He says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Well, what do we know? There's a day coming that's going to be difficult. How should we live? He said, live holy and godly lives. Do we know how to do that? Did Jesus teach us how to do that? Do the scriptures teach us how to do that? Is it pretty clear in scripture how to live a holy and godly life? Yes, it is, right? So we have to keep these things in mind. Before we go on any further, let's look at an old story together. This story popped up um, in Melanie's devotions this week. And, uh, and as we were talking about this, it just hit me. I'm like, I need to talk about this on Sunday. Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. We're going back in the Old Testament. This is like... This is around the year like 1445 BC, right? Like 1500 years before Jesus, 3,500 years ago. 1500 years before John wrote Revelation. There's a story of a fellow named Korah. Korah with a K, not with a C. A fellow named Korah. He was a Levite. Korah was in the tribe of Levi, which meant that he and his family were responsible to help out at the tabernacle with all the stuff that had to be done for the sacrifices and ceremony to worship God properly. He was not a priest. His family were not priests, but they helped do all the work of what was then the tent of worship, according to Old Testament law. It says in Numbers 16, right away in verse 1, it says he became insolent, rose up against Moses. So here's Korah, a Levite. He's working in the church, became insolent. Interesting word. And he rose up against Moses. At this time, Moses is still the leader of the tribe of Israel, uh, or the nation of Israel, rather. And Aaron, Moses' brother, is the head priest. And there are priests, Moses, or Aaron's sons are the priests. They're in charge, but the Levites help them. It says, Korah became insolent, rose up against Moses. With him were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron, 
and said to them, you've gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them. And the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? In other words, they come to Moses and Aaron who had been specifically set aside by the Lord to be the leaders. And they're like, how come you get to be the leaders? We're all holy here. What's the big deal? Any of you ever Mennonites ever hear that kind of conversation in one of the churches you were part of? Yeah, yeah. Now, Mennonite pastors are not Moses and Aaron. Let's be very clear about that. Interesting stuff, okay. These 250 plus Korah, and some of his family came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron, God's leaders. It says in verse 4 of Numbers 16, when Moses heard this, he fell face down. And he said to Korah and all his followers, in the morning, the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy. You Levites have gone too far. We've got a conflict within Israel. We've got a conflict among the leaders. We've got a conflict among the church leaders, the religious people, those who ought to be able to work this out among themselves, right? Moses basically says to him, God called you to help out the tabernacle. Isn't that enough? Why do you want to take over Aaron's priesthood too? And then it says in verse 12 that some other people started grumbling too. Verse 13, these other folks said, well, hey, Moses and Aaron, while they're complaining, let us complain as well. Isn't it enough that you brought us up out of land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? You also want to lord it over us? Moreover, I've never heard anyone use moreover when they get angry at their church leaders, but these guys did. Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance or fields or vineyards. Basically, they're stomping their feet and saying, Moses, this is harder than we want it to be. And Moses, like many parents, says in verse 15, he became angry. These people are complaining against him. They're just piggybacking on somebody who may or may not have a legitimate claim. And they're like, hey, by the way, where's all the good stuff you promised? Moses became angry. The next day, it says, Korah and his family and the 250 rebels who were in this council and their families gathered before the tabernacle. It says, the glory of the Lord, verse 19, appeared to the entire assembly. Number 1620, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. He says, stand back. God was ready to wipe out the whole gang. And we can understand that, right? This gang is directly and loudly arguing against the very people that had led them this far. They're arguing against Moses and Aaron who had been established as God's leaders for this time very clearly. And they're rebelling and their rebellion against Moses and Aaron is not just a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, it's a rebellion against God. Now, be careful anytime you hear a pastor comparing this situation to what's happening in their congregation today, watch it. I'm just going to say, watch it. This is what happened then. God says to Moses and Aaron, back up. I'm about to get to work. Look what happened, though. What did Moses and Aaron do? God was getting ready to deliver his justice. God was getting ready to deliver Moses and Aaron from these rebels. What did Moses and Aaron do? It says they fell face down and they prayed that only the guilty would be struck. Moses says, don't wipe out everybody. I mean, their families are there. Only strike the guilty ones. And then Moses said, verse 28, Moses said to the whole group, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and it was not my idea. 
If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. What happened? Look at verse 31, number 16. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart. The earth opened its mouth, swallowed them and all their households and all those associated with Korah together with those possessions. Verse 35, fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who had come forward with Korah. So these <clears throat> bad guys are being wiped out. The earth opened up, showing that indeed Moses is God's servant, just as it all said. Verse 42. Sorry. Start at verse 41. The next day, <laughs> people are dumb. The next day, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. I mean, let's remember what happened. Yesterday, the ground opened up and fire came down from heaven and consumed the people who were grumbling against Moses and Aaron. So what does everybody decide to do today? Well, they decide to grumble against Moses and Aaron. We've never seen this in our world. It's hard for us to understand, isn't it? Never do the blind lead the blind. But it happened once. The whole Israelite community, all of them, everybody, grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have killed the Lord's people, they said. You know, Moses, how dare you open up the ground underneath them? It's absurd. But when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned toward the tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud, this is God's cloud. It's daytime, the cloud's there. If it was night, the pillar of fire would be there. We read about that angel in Revelation 10, right? But here, suddenly the cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord appeared then Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord said to Moses, get away from this assembly so that I can put an end to them at once. God says, I'm going to take care of these morons. Yesterday I showed them a little taste, and now they're coming back. It's kind of like, all right, you know, I warned you the first time, but what am I going to do? You keep coming at me. I mean, isn't that what's happening here? Do you see the pic? I'm not trying to be flippant about this. Do you see how these people were just openly rebelling against God despite seeing amazing, miraculous things yesterday? God says, get away from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. And then it says that Moses and Aaron fell face down. They didn't run away. They fell face down, a symbol of humility before God, a symbol of grief before God. God was ready to wipe out all the grumblers, the whole community, everybody who opposed Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron could have been home free, finally rid of these complainers. But look at verse 46. Moses said to Aaron, take your censer. It's like a little, a little thing that holds fire, holds coals, kind of a torchish kind of thing. Take your censer, put incense in it, along with burning coals from the altar. Hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague has started. Moses says to Aaron, Aaron, you're the priest. You're the one who can pray for these people. You're the one who can go through the ceremony. Remember, this is in the Old Testament, 1,500 years before Jesus was on the cross. Okay? 
Moses says, Aaron, you can pray for these people. You can ask God to forgive them. You can do something about this. So Aaron did as Moses said, ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense. You can read all through the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy for what that means. Basically what it means is Aaron did what had to be done to kind of get God's attention and ask forgiveness. Again, this is before Jesus. Now, because of what Jesus has done, we can simply ask Jesus ourselves. We don't have to light incense and carry censers and do all this sacrificial stuff. The sacrifice has been paid. But then, this was the law. So Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for the people. It says in verse 48 that he stood between the living and the dead and the plague stopped. But 14,700 people died from the plague in addition to those who had died because of Korah yesterday. Fascinating story. What have I said before? If you think the Bible is boring, you're not reading it. This one even pops up in the middle of the book of Numbers. Oh, Numbers can be tiresome. I wonder if that's why it's right here. Hey, keep your attention. Look, look what happened. Fascinating story. You've got Korah and these guys, Moses and Aaron, why are you guys in charge? The earth swallows them up. God shows them who's in charge. And then the next day, the whole community starts grumbling and complaining. Hey, who are you to kill God's people? And God is angry with these people. They're not getting it. But Moses prays for the people who are mad at Moses. He prays for them and says, Aaron, you can do something about this. Help them. And so Aaron goes and helps them. And yes, 14,700 people died. But there were more than 600,000 people there who could have died. Aaron Though he was being disrespected, Aaron, though he was being challenged by morons, Aaron, though he did not like it and he was frustrated, Aaron did what he could do to help these people. I love this story. And it ties into Revelation this way. No matter what the exact timeline might be of God's working, this story reminds me of how I need to live now. And it should be a reminder to you as well. Here are Moses and Aaron clearly wronged, angry, frustrated. And those feelings are all legitimate. They're all legitimate feelings that Moses and Aaron are dealing with. God is feeling angry, wronged, and frustrated too. Enough so that he's ready to wipe out the whole assembly. Shades of revelation, right? I've had enough, God says. I'm going to wipe you all out. We don't know everything about exactly what's going to happen in Revelation, but we know that it's going to get bad. We don't know exactly how long the church is going to be here on earth and, and when we go away. And There's so much argument that we can have over that stuff. But, but do we know what we ought to be doing while we're here? You and I. And, and some of us, we could die tomorrow. Do we know, though, what we should do today? Are we clueless? We're not clueless. What does the scripture say? Well, we read from number 16, we read how Moses and Aaron did all that they could do to, to save life. Even though God was ready to end it, Moses and Aaron were like, no, let's give us another chance. Second Corinthians verse, or chapter 5, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Second Corinthians 5, 18 all this salvation is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul says that those of us who are saved, we have the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19 of 2 Corinthians 5, God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. If you're saved by Jesus Christ, God doesn't count your sins against you anymore. He pulls you in. You're in his family. 
And it says in the second part of 2 Corinthians 5, 19, God has committed to us, Paul is talking about him and his buddies, but all of us as Christians as well. He's committed to us the message of reconciliation. This is part of our calling, church. Romans 12 says, don't take revenge, dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it is mine to repay, or it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And then Romans 12, 20, challenging verses, but very clear. Paul says, on the contrary, instead of us getting all wrapped up in revenge, he says, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, what? What's it say? Feed him. If he's thirsty, what? Give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. We could argue about what that means to heap burning coals on his head, but it gets a person's attention if they have burning coals on their head. It may cause them to consider what they're doing if they have burning coals on their head. It may even help them to listen to you if you are giving them a sandwich and a drink of water, even though they're trying to kill you. And then Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Are these teachings in Corinthians and Romans pretty clear? Are they fairly straightforward? It says God will take revenge. Let him. That is not our job. Paul says, leave room for the wrath of God. Almost as if God said to Moses and Aaron, get out of the way. So what's our job? Well, we have the ministry of reconciliation, like Moses and Aaron did. God does whatever God will do. Remember, he's God. But we're supposed to pray for our enemies, like Moses and Aaron did, like Jesus did. What does that look like? I mean, for you and me, what does it look like this week as we go into November 2021? What does it look like to have a ministry of reconciliation? Three things for you. And I'm going to tell you right now, these things are hard. I don't do these things perfectly. And you please rest assured that none of you do all three of these things perfectly either. There is a message in this for all of us. I know this. I hope you realize this. What three things can we do right out of these scriptures? Number one, you and I can pray for our enemies the way Moses and Aaron did. They fell down on their faces. They said, God, don't take away the people who are innocent. God, don't, don't wrap up all the people just because a couple people did bad things. God, and, and Aaron was able to help bring forgiveness are you praying for your enemies the way Moses and Aaron did? This is not popular. This is not practiced by most of our neighbors. This is not practiced by much of the world. Have you been praying for the people who frustrate you? And I don't care what your ideology is. There are plenty of people who can frustrate you. There are people in all shades, all sides, all areas who can be very frustrating. How are you responding to those frustrating people? Moses and Aaron knew what it was like. Paul knew what it was like. He was writing half his letters from being in jail, arrested only for his faith. We're told to pray for our enemies. Not just praying that our enemies would be stopped, but we're actually told to pray for our enemies. Are you? Are you? It is so tempting to, at best, just write our enemies off and ignore them, or to, at worst, just retaliate right back and take whatever power I have to shut them up. 
we're told pretty unequivocally here, pray for your enemies. That's hard, but we must. That could be enough, but I have two more written down, so I'm going to share them with you. Romans 12, 14. This is one of those passages right before this little piece in Romans 12, uh, 19, 20, 21, where Paul says, leave room for the wrath of God. And in Romans 12, 14, he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse. Bless those who persecute you. What does it mean if they persecute you? It means they treat you badly. It means they talk about you badly. It means that they do all that they can do to hold you down, to lock you up, to shut you up, perhaps to kill you. Romans 12, 14. God speaks through the Apostle Paul and says, bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse. Blessings are often words. And curses are often words. Our words matter. We are told in Romans 12 to bless those who persecute us, not curse them. How are you talking about your enemies? How are you talking about the people who drive you crazy? The people who seem to be opposed to all that you believe in, that you love, that you want to live out. Are you blessing them, those persecutors? Doesn't say they're not persecuting you. God says, leave room for my wrath, I will repay. What do we do? We're supposed to bless those who persecute us. How have you been talking about the people who you think are way off? I see signs in yards. I'm not talking about your yards. Although if I am, stop it. I see signs in yards. I see flags on trucks. I see t-shirts that are just so obscene. People walking around proudly about who they hate and where that person can go. And mind you, this happens on all sides of all political aisles and all sides of all worldly arguments. I hear Christians spewing hateful words. Sometimes I wonder when the ground is going to open up. We have a ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And there are many people in this world who don't care about that. They don't care about Jesus. They are still turning away from Jesus. They are actively fighting against Jesus. What did Moses and Aaron do? They waited for God to do his work. And then even when God was doing his work, they said, okay, God, would you please forgive us? What did Jesus do? Jesus, who could have called down legions of angels to wipe out all the bad guys. Instead, he showed a different way. He said, no, I'm going to sacrifice myself because this is how it's going to work. Meeting power with power and trying to overcome with power does not eventually change hearts. It just changes boundaries. Jesus says, I want to change hearts, and so I'm going to give myself. Do you see what I'm talking about here? This is how Paul can say, after Jesus died and rose again, as Jesus is sitting on his throne in heaven, Paul says, Christians, if you're going to follow Jesus, you need to bless those who persecute you. Bless them and don't curse. So we pray for our enemies. We bless those who persecute us. And then number three, we serve people, all people, with whatever we have. If they're hungry, we give them food. 
If they're thirsty, we give them something to drink. If they're in need of something at Christmas, we fill a shoebox. We don't know exactly where it's going. We're saying, here, we're at your service. They walk through your parking lot. You give them a water bottle. You invite them to church, and you pray for them as they go. We're taught to serve our enemies, feeding them, giving them something to drink, because we don't overcome evil by acting slightly less evil. We overcome evil with good. Nod your head if you know this. You know this. We know this. So many of us have been taught this from the time that we were little. But what are the temptations that we fall into? Well, I'm kind of a big shot now. I have a voice. I have some power. I have some influence. I have some money. I can do something about this. And by the way, I am ticked off. And I'm going to let everybody know it. That's our world right now. That's some of us right now. And it can't be. Because that is not how the kingdom of God moves on. That is not how 3,000 people every hour are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Those 3,000 people every hour who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, many of them are coming to faith in places where Christians do not have political power, where Christians do not even have a political voice. Many of these Christians are coming in places where Christians are oppressed because the Christians are saying, fine, you beat me, I will feed you. You curse me, I will bless you. You hurt me, I will pray for you. That changes hearts. That kind of witness changes lives. Oh, meeting power with power, I understand how people get to that kind of rationalization, but is that what the New Testament teaches us? Is that what Jesus lived out? I mean, we have power from on high, and God says, just get out of my way, I'll handle it when it needs to be handled. God simply says, pray for them, feed them, bless them, love them doesn't mean that nothing matters. It doesn't mean that we ignore sin. No, part of praying for them is praying that they repent, praying that they turn back to Jesus and they leave their sinful life behind them. It's not saying everything is okay. It's not ignoring the problems that are out there. No, we work at those problems by serving, by loving, by praying. We have a ministry of reconciliation to bring people to the love of God, not to blow them away and send them to hell. We leave revenge to God. And this is our job until we're not here anymore. How long do we have to do this job? I don't know. And you don't either. But as I read the scripture, it seems very clear to me that this is our mission as Christians, even as we debate the exact meanings of prophecies and revelation. To reconcile people to Christ, overcoming evil with good, praying and serving and speaking well. Showing people Jesus so that they too will turn from their wicked ways and find new life in Jesus Christ as we have. What a privilege to work for Jesus, but but church, heads up. Because some who say they work for Jesus are not working the way Jesus said to work. And if you're feeling convicted about that right now, I want to give you just a moment and we're going to be silent. If there's anything you need to repent of, you go ahead and repent of it. You just pray to God and say, God, I'm sorry. God, forgive me. God, I was wrong. And, and he will heal you and he will forgive you. 
But as our worship team comes forward and gets ready to to lead us in our last song, I, I am going to give a moment of silence here. If there's anything you need to repent of, do it now. Amen. Church, I, I know I'm painting with some pretty broad strokes today. Let me tell you, I, I love this church. And I am blessed with a lot of Christian brothers and sisters in this church and in others who are working well for Jesus, who are praying for enemies. I, I know you are serving your enemies, and I know that you are blessing and, and not cursing. But, but some of us are, are, are getting a little off track with this and just need to be called back. I hope that this will kind of call us back and, and remember us what, remind us what faithful living can look like because we can do this. So many of us are doing this, but, but we can be refined, can't we? We want to be really good at this ministry of reconciliation. So I hope my passion today doesn't, doesn't lead you to think that I'm scolding all of you for everything you do, but I am reminding all of us that all of us can improve. As we pray for enemies, bless those who curse us, and serve those who are lining up against us. Church, can we, uh, can we stand and sing? We're going to sing this last song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's going to talk about God's strength. It's going to talk about God's power. And God indeed gives us that strength, but it's strength so that we can serve well, pray well, and love well. Can we sing together?